Today, as Amy said, we begin a new nine-week series we're calling Family Tree. And what we'll be doing over the next two months is looking at the lives of a number of Bible characters, often referred to as heroes of the faith, uh, Bible characters who are all members of our spiritual family tree. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, characters from the Old Testament like Isaac and Rachel and people from the New Testament like Peter and Lydia. But I want you to know that our intention isn't to simply talk about the heroic actions of these people. No, uh, we're going to be specifically looking at the life-changing moments in these people's lives, moments when they came face to face with unexpected circumstances, and then they had to decide in the moment whether they were going to trust God through those difficult moments or whether they were going to stop trusting in God. Now, our hope is that you'll be encouraged by what we discover throughout this series. In fact, our greatest desire is that this summer might be a transitional time for each of us as individuals and for us as a community, and that together we will go into the autumn with a much deeper sense of of God's presence in our lives, a confidence that He loves us, and that our trust in Him will be greater. That's where we're headed. And uh, as we begin our Family Tree series today, we'll be talking about the father of the Jewish nation and, by extension, the father of all the people of God, Abraham. Abraham is one of the best known of all the people that we find in the Bible. Well, we could, actually, we could have spent the whole summer just talking about about what the book of Genesis tells us about Abraham. And boy, does Genesis tell us a lot about him. Twelve and a half of the 50 chapters in Genesis are dedicated to the story of Abraham's relationship with God. And while we could talk today about all sorts of moments in Abraham's life, I want to look at what I believe was a highly transitional moment for Abraham. Now, it isn't a hugely dramatic moment though there are any number of hugely dramatic moments in his life. And it isn't a miraculous moment, though, yes, Abraham did experience some uh, miraculous moments. No, what we'll be talking about today is a moment in Abraham's life when his faith and his trust in God was tested in a very practical and down-to-earth way. And I believe that you'll soon see that the way that Abraham's trust was tested, and remember, this is over 4,000 years ago that this happened, the way that his faith in God was tested still has great resonance with us today. So I want to get right into it. Let's get started. You'll find today's story in Genesis 13. That's on page 11 in our house Bible. And I want to welcome everybody that's with us online. We know you're out there. Um, You'll need a Bible as well. Everybody needs to have the Bible today because we're going to be talking about a good deal of text. And can I just pray for us before we get going? I'd like to do that. Lord, uh, I pray that your uh, spirit will speak through me, 
that I will simply be a vessel of your word to our people today and that our hearts will be moved and changed by your word. I thank you for your presence in this room. Now I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our house, house Bible titles this story, Abram and Lot Separate. And yes, it, that's a true description of what literally happens. Abraham and Lot do separate. But if I were naming this story, I would call it self-absorbed Lot takes advantage of his uncle Abraham's generosity. And I think you'll understand why I would give it that name in a moment. But first, I need to give you some context and background. Abraham, oh wait, one, one second. I know that at this point in the story, he's called Abram and his wife is called Sarai, and their names haven't been changed yet to Abraham and Sarah, but I just can't call him Abram. See, I couldn't even do it that time. I can't call him Abram and her Sarai because it's just like ingrained in my system that they're Abraham and Sarah, so sorry, folks who wanna get technical, I'm gonna call him Abraham anyway, okay? Sorry, I just can't help myself, so we're, everybody okay with that? All right, okay, let's go then. At this point in the overall story of Abraham's life, we've been told two very important things about him. Things we need to remember as we get into the stuff that we're gonna be talking about. And the first one is this, that when Abraham first heard from God, or when he heard strongly from God, he obeyed God, even when what God called him to do was both difficult and unexpected. Well, here, here, I'm just gonna, listen, I'm gonna read it to you. Listen to what we find right at the beginning of Abraham's story in Genesis 12, verses one and two. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. First off, leaving one's country, one's relatives, and one's family would have been an unimaginable ask in the ancient world. People just didn't leave their country and their families back then. Most people never traveled more than five miles in any direction from their place of birth their entire lives. They stayed together with their families. So Abram being commanded to leave his country and his family for good to go to some place that God was going to show him was essentially like being given a death sentence. In fact, in the ancient world, being forcibly banished from your native country and your family was considered a worse punishment than being given the death sentence and put to death. And yet God had commanded Abraham to do just this. And verse four tells us, so Abram, Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old and when he left Haran, that's where he had been living, and he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his, his livestock, and all the people that he had taken into his household at Haran, and he headed for the land of Canaan. This turned out to be a journey of 600 miles, by the way, and with all of their flocks and such, it probably would have been unusual for them to travel 10 miles a day. 
So it took them a long time to get wherever God was taking them. But once in Canaan, God again visited Abraham and he told him this. He said, I will give this land to your descendants. The two important things about God giving Abraham this promise. First, the way that ancient people thought about the world was this, that there were a whole bunch of gods who lived up in the sky, in the space called the heavens is what they called it, and they ruled over particular areas of land. The gods did not move. They stayed up there, and when people came under them, they had to find out from the locals which god they thought was up there, and so they had to worship this god up here because they were under him. And then if they moved over here, then they had to worship another god over here. And so you have to have in your mind that the gods didn't go anywhere. But what Abraham learned in this moment that this god that had told him to travel 600 miles from a place over here was that this god was a god who traveled everywhere that he would be with, could be with him everywhere. This God was present. And this was probably mind-blowing to Abraham that this God actually could go with him, that he was a God that was present in all places. I'm sure it was somewhat reassuring, too, that he knew when he got 600 miles away, that God was still there. And the second thing that would have been important to Abraham in this promise was that God said he was going to give this land to his descendants. But Abraham didn't have any descendants at this point. Verse verse 10 of chapter 11 of Genesis tells us this. Sarah was unable to become pregnant and had no children. She was 65 years old at this time. Abraham was probably wondering something like, How is this going to happen? And one last thing before we get to today's passage. We learn right before we get to today's passage that due to a famine in Canaan, Abraham had packed up his entire family and everything he owned, and he traveled 200 miles to Egypt to find refuge there. And right before they had entered Egyptian territory, Abraham had said this to Sarah. He said, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them that you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. And sure enough, When Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. And when the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Now, we don't We don't have uh, the time to talk about all this, but one thing, this passage always confused me because uh, Sarah was 65. Well, I have to tell you this. I am now married to a woman of about that age, and I get it 100%. (laughs) 
anyway, uh, what happened was that God intervened. Um, this was not a good thing, and God intervened, and Pharaoh got really mad about Abraham lying to him about this, and he sent him on his way, and uh, what we've now learned is this. This is what we've learned about Abraham. At one point in his life, he can be an obedient follower of God, and he can turn around in the next moment, and he can also be a save-my-own-skin-in-any-way-that-I-can liar. Abraham may be a towering figure on our spiritual family tree, but by the end of the first couple of chapters, we know the truth about Abraham, and the truth is that he is a regular person. One minute he trusts God that he's going to take care of him and lead him, and the next minute he turns around with a terrible plan of deception to save himself. Bottom line, as we look at Abraham now, he is just a regular guy, a regular guy. And then we read this from the first verse of our passage today. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev, along with his wife and Lot and all that they owned. Now, I need to tell you that Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot's father, Abraham's brother, had died some time ago. And Abraham had taken Lot under his wing, and he was with him all the time. And we read on, it says this, Abram was very rich in livestock as well as silver and gold. And to say, no, livestock is a general term in the Old Testament to stand for any kind of herding animal. Uh, it can mean sheep and goats and cattle and even camels. And the thought is that the reason that he now had a whole bunch of gold and silver was because Pharaoh gave it to him to get rid of him. That, that what God had done was bring a terrible pestilence on the house of Pharaoh because Sarah was in the house, and so they paid him off to get him. Now he's got gold and silver and animals. And then we read this in verse 3. From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages towards Bethel, and they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This was the same place where Abram had built the altar. Now, when Ab Abraham built this altar, when he first came into Canaan, and he built it as a sign that he was going to only worship one God. Everybody else in the world worshiped lots of gods, but Abraham was gonna worship one God at that altar, and that's why he built it. And we read this, and there he worshiped the Lord again. And Lot was traveling with Abram. He had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goats and herds of cattle and many tents. That's a many tents is a phrase that means that he had a lot of places for workers to live who traveled with him. And so he had a, to say that he had many tents meant that it took a lot of people to take care of all of his livestock. And the truth is these people were primarily slaves, but that, that word many, those words many tents means he was a rich man. It goes on to say, but the land could not support both Abram and Lot and all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. And at, at that time, Canaanites and parasites were also living in the land. Now what this means is that Abraham and Lot 
weren't the only people vying for the use of the land in that area. And Abraham and Lot had to keep moving their huge flocks around to find enough grass for their livestock to graze on. And they had to do it without upsetting all of these local people who were living in the land where they were. And this was, it was a really big project to find that much open land. It was difficult to find good grass for your cattle and your sheep. And everybody's doing this. And those people that already lived there, they were suspicious of these rich people who had just shown up with all these cattle. And this is why it led to disputes between Abraham's workers and Lot's workers. This is where we read, though. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us and our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of land you want, and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, I'll take the land on the right. And if you prefer the land on the right, then I will take the land on the left. Now, just to be clear, this offer on Abram's part was completely unexpected, I'm certain. He was under no obligation to do this for Lot at all. He was the, he was the tribal leader. And Lot didn't have a thing to say about it, actually, because Abraham was in charge, and yet Abraham was trying to be a peacemaker in the midst of this problem, and so he makes this grand offer to his nephew. And in verse 10, we read, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. Now, here's an interesting aside. That phrase that says, Lot took a long look took a long look. It says he looked at the fertile plains, but this is the exact same language that is used earlier in the book of Genesis when it says, Eve took a long look at the forbidden fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You find this phrase frequently in the Old Testament when someone takes a long look. It means something bad is about to happen. And here's what Lot saw when he took his long look. It says the whole area was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord. In other words, the Garden of Eden, folks, or the beautiful land of Egypt. And Egypt at the time was considered the breadbasket of the world because of the Nile. The Nile kept everything watered. What Lot saw looked like paradise over there. Verse 11 tells us that Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. And he went there with his flocks and his servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. We don't get the slightest hint that Lot showed any deference to his uncle at all here. It's, there isn't a suggestion that he thought of compromising or dividing the land up or anything. We don't even get a thank you for your kindness in this, uncle. We don't get any of that stuff. No, all we read is that Lot chose to take everything that reminded him of the Garden of Eden. And all I can say is, what a jerk. What a jerk. Verse 12 goes on to say, So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved with his tents to the place near Sodom. 
and settled among the cities of the plain. And then we get this editorial aside here from Moses. He says, but the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. Now, we aren't told about directly in this story about how much of a betrayal this choice by Lot would have been. Lot took all that was Garden of Eden-like, and he left his uncle Abraham what was then referred to as the wilderness. Now, we often think of the wilderness as desert land. That's not what this land is. This land is It has scrubby grass growing in it. It could support flocks, but you had to keep moving around all the time to find enough grass for your animals. And you certainly couldn't settle down as Lot got to do in the place where he chose. You couldn't settle down because you couldn't plant any crops at all in the wilderness. You had to keep moving around to make sure that your animals had enough. And let's be honest here, Lot certainly knew all of this about this land, and yet he chose to take all that was good for himself and leave his uncle with nothing but a difficult future. And remember, his uncle was a man who had taken him in when his father had died, and he was the man who had protected him over the decades. Uh, Lot was not a young man at this time. And And Abraham, his uncle, is also the man who made it possible for Lot to become rich on his own because of his association with his uncle. And this was the man that Lot turned his back on. There is no way to describe this moment as anything other than one of a total betrayal. I'm just saying. Verse 14 says, after Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, Look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth that cannot be counted, go and walk through the land in every direction for I am giving it to you. Once again, God tells Abraham to take a journey this time throughout all of the land that God was promising to him. And now Abraham had to make a decision. And I'm sure he wasn't feeling like traveling around at the moment. He'd just seen Lot leave and take the best land to himself. And Abraham had no children to inherit this land he's supposed to go look at. And he was getting older and he was living in the wilderness 600 miles from home. I bet he was wondering if it had all been worth it. But God had said literally this. It literally says, get up, arise, and go. There's almost a sense of God taking him by the hand and pulling him up out of his chair and saying, get going. I want you to see what I'm going to give you. And just think of how easy it would have been for Abraham to become bitter and skeptical and angry and to lose trust in everyone, including God, after his closest relative had just stabbed him in the back. I can hear him thinking, oh yeah, God, you're gonna bless me here in this wilderness, sure. Yeah, you're gonna give me so many descendants that they can't be counted. Give me a break. We don't get any of that. All we get is God told him to go. 
and see what he'd promised him. That's all we get. Genesis doesn't tell us anything about Abraham traveling through the land. It doesn't say that he saw all that he was going to get at all. But the way that the next sentence is written in the Hebrew seems to tell us that he took that journey and when it was over, he chose well in his heart towards God. Because verse 18 says, Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. The oak grove owned by Mamre was the spot where he had put his first altar to God. He had settled, and any time anybody settles in the Old Testament, that means they have chosen to make that place their home. They are choosing to make their name connected to a place. And he settles in a spot where he had first fully shown that he trusted this God. And then we read, there he built another altar to the Lord. Now, building a second altar was not necessary at all, but it was a sign that Abraham, after, even after experiencing this great moment of betrayal, was going to continue to trust God. And not only trust him, but he was going to worship him with renewed conviction and passion. This is what building a second altar would have meant in their world. He wasn't going to allow Lot and Lot's selfishness and his duplicity turn him away from the future hope that God had given him. God had given him hope for a new homeland and a new family, and he wasn't going to turn away from that. And it is so like us to have someone do something to us, and then we blame God for it and turn from him. Abraham was not going to do that. You know, we often speak about Abraham as one of the heroes of the faith. But rarely do we talk about this moment as being heroic. And yet there's something, something deeply heroic to me in Abraham's choice to stand and settle in a place of profound trust in the face of such a stab in the back. And I am so thankful that the Bible gives us this story a story where one of our spiritual ancestors experienced a moment of betrayal like this. The reason I'm glad it's here is because I know all too well what it is to align yourself with someone, to give them favor, to be generous to them and trust them, and then have them turn on you and take advantage of your generosity. And in their self-absorption, do unimaginable things to you. In fact, this has happened to me twice in ways that altered my life, to be honest. Once was a business associate and once was with a friend who was overseeing a large aspect of our family's financial life. I'm not going to go into details today but I think I know what it must have been like for Abraham to suddenly realize that all of his assumptions about the kind of relationship that he had with his nephew Lot were terribly mistaken. I know what it is to have to rethink years of relationship with someone 
and then feel like a fool for having ever been so profoundly naive. I can't say that in those moments of realizing how deeply I'd been betrayed that I built a second altar to God. But I did hear a voice in my spirit saying that I should, shouldn't kick back with all of the ferocity that I wanted to kick back against those people in the moment. In the end, I chose to let them wander off into their own Sodoms. And I simply stopped caring, if you will, about whatever might happen to them while they were there. That was my way of coping. These things happened years ago. One of those situations has never been remedied in any fashion, and I have to be really careful as I stand here and talk about it so that the anger doesn't come surfacing up and make me a bitter person. But the other one, the other situation, has been completely redeemed with full restitution and genuine forgiveness, but it took years for God to work that one out, and to be honest, it only worked out due to God's direct intervention through others. In my life, it didn't happen because I was a saint of any sort. And as I've thought through the story of Abraham's betrayal, I've concluded that Abraham built a second altar because he'd come to realize that even though it felt like he was alone in the wilderness, he wasn't. God was still with him. And I'm also sure that he came to realize that God was aware of what had happened to him and that Lot's abandonment of him wasn't a sign that God had abandoned him as well. And God was still present everywhere, in every land, all of the time. And it must have become clear to Abraham as well that God hadn't forgotten any of his promises to him. In fact, if you look carefully at the promises that God gives to Abraham after Lot betrays him, you'll find that all of God's promises are more robust and they're more imaginable than they had been even before. God gives him grander vision for the future. And I have to admit that as I look back at things in my own life, when I use a longer view, even in the midst of being terribly betrayed, I can see that I wasn't alone. God clearly showed me that he was aware of what was happening, he was present, and as I trusted him, even in my anger and disbelief at what had happened to us, he protected us and he eventually brought unexpected restitution. And I cannot tell you how much peace that has brought to our lives. I am confident that many of you have had these same sorts of moments in your lives. And I'm not here to tell you that it's all gonna work out fine. But I am here to tell you that what God did for Abraham and what God has done for me, we are two members of your spiritual family tree and God loves this family more than you can imagine. And what God did in the midst of Abraham's great disappointment and in the midst of mine is no different than what he'll do for you in yours. He will stay present. He is aware of the details of your life. And my bet is that he's taking more offense of, at what has happened to you than you can even gin up in your own heart. His spirit 
will be present with you. And I've found that many times he is present in the people who stand with me as I go through those moments. What I fully believe is that what God wants to do is to show you that even in the face of any sort of circumstance, you can still trust him. And I am confident that eventually he can bring peace. He will bring peace to your heart. Maybe not as quickly as you would like, but he will bring you peace. Abraham, our spiritual ancestor and a member of our family tree, chose to live as close as he could to the place where God had spoken directly to him. And I think he made this decision to settle, where he chose to settle, so he'd never forget those moments when God had been so close to him that he actually heard his voice giving him hope. Even at a time when his next of kin had turned his back on him. And I just have to say, this settling near God like this makes sense to me. Something I need to continually do. It just makes sense to me. You know, I want to close with some words of Jesus. This is a well-known passage but it has taken on new meaning for me as I've contemplated what Abraham must have gone through when his nephew turned on him in this way. And here's what I've been thinking. I've been thinking that when Jesus first spoke these words to a great crowd, and by the way, this great crowd was made up almost 100% of the descendants of Abraham, by the way. And Jesus, as he was speaking to this great crowd of Abrahamic children, if you will, he was unable to not think about what happened to Abraham a long time ago with Lot. And he also knew that just as Abraham needed God's presence then, these people gathered had also been betrayed and they needed to hear words of promise and comfort from God through his son. And so I'm going to read these words to you to give you hope in whatever you may have experienced. These words from Jesus are just as much of an eternal promise to us as God's words to Abraham were to him, and these are the words that Jesus spoke. He said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Abraham realized that. We should realize that. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's a promise. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Abraham was humble. He inherited the earth. We, we are promised the same. God blesses those who, are hunger, who, who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, and these words of Jesus are promises to us. It may seem like there is no chance right now that we will find comfort or be satisfied or shown mercy or inherit the whole earth, but this is what he's promised us, and at least for me, I'm going to settle in a place of trust that Jesus was telling me the truth. 
And I'm also going to settle in a place where I fully believe that God will someday ultimately keep his word to us. And even though it seems almost unimaginable now, someday we'll see him face to face. We'll see him in his kingdom and we will worship him alongside with all of the other members of our shared family tree. That's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that you are always present. I thank you that what others do or say to us has no impact on your love for us. Father, I pray that you'll give us the strength to stand firm in our trust that you are a good God and that you are brokenhearted over the world's brokenness. Father, I pray that we'll be a people who are peacemakers in the midst of all that seeks to undermine your good intentions, that we as a community will be a bright light of your faithfulness, of your great faithfulness, and that the way we live our lives will tell everyone around us, Lord, who so need your light, that you are a God who loves us and sent your son for us. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.